You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning into the Fully Occupied podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite listening platform. Today's episode is a fascinating one. We are joined by Paul Massey. Paul is the CEO and founder of B6 Real Estate Advisors. Of course, he has a long history of being a commercial real estate leader uh, in the New York State, uh, in the New York City area. Uh, Paul has uh, some very sharp insights on where we are in the commercial real estate market today, where we think we're going. Uh, he walks us through his history of getting to know every block and every every parcel in New York City uh, and has become one of the preeminent real estate investment sales brokers uh, in the city. Uh, Paul also talks about why he ran for mayor of New York and what he thinks some of the issues are facing uh, the city of New York from a real estate and from a societal perspective. It's a great episode. Paul's a great guy, uh, and I'm sure you'll love this one. Hey, Paul. Welcome to the Fully Occupied Show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to uh, to speak with you. I'm, I'm excited to dive into some some good topics with you. Um, for the audience, uh, give us a little bit about your background. I'm the CEO of a real estate investment sales firm called B6, which means uh, building by building, block by block, six B words. And um, we are uh, a bunch of us are formally with a company um, that was in a similar business, Massey Knackle, uh, operating in uh, the five boroughs of, in New York. Cool. So we'll, we'll get to what B6 is in a little bit, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, how you got into this business and and your 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 kind of your history to where you where you are today. Pure luck. I was um, involved with my. <laughs> Eternity in uh, in college, and uh, there was an alum who was supposed to come around a couple of times a year and make sure we weren't burning the house down. And uh, it turns out that he was a national accounts officer with a big job at CBRE, and he talked me into taking a summer job with CB in my hometown in Boston. And um, the minute I saw it, I knew I had to be in real estate and I had to be working for CB, which I ended up. Uh, loving uh, when i when i got done with school i went to the manager of the boston office at cb and he said he wasn't going to hire me because he wasn't going to roll the dice on college kid and uh, he had he only had one opening and he had identified some salesmen he thought would be uh better bets and i was floored and i went running back to uh the frat connection and he said well that's the bad news the good news is uh we're, we're brand new in New York city and they'd take anybody down there. And, uh, and so, um, <laughs> I, uh, uh, I went to New York thinking my grand plan was six to nine months, work my butt off and convince them to give me the job back in Boston that I wanted. And I think three months in, I was completely never leaving New York in love with the city and, um, and the time with CB was wonderful, so never looked back. It was fantastic. Ended up meeting my wife um, 
about, you know, the same time that, um, well, when I was at CB, I ran into, um, early on, um, Bob Knackle, who was, we were similar backgrounds. He grew up in Northern New Jersey and we didn't know each other, but coincidentally, he had also worked for CB as a summer kid, uh, doing research the way I did. And, um, he showed up in Manhattan, um, after I had arrived and, um, they were looking for people to do investment sales. So we volunteered because we were um, by far the youngest people in the office and they had a bunch of dozens of office leasing brokers. So we said to ourselves, let's differentiate ourselves and volunteer to be the investment sales brokers. Um, so we did. And we had, it was the eighties. It was a great run. Um, you couldn't mess it up. And, um, but then when we were, uh, I think I was 20, Bob was 27. I was 28. We were definitely too young to know any better. We, uh, we got frisky and decided we were going to start our own company. And so we started Massey Knackle in later 1988, which was absolutely horrible timing because the market had collapsed in October of 87. Um, and, uh, but the re the music was still playing in real estate. People were, alleging that the stock market crash wouldn't catch up with the real estate biz, which interestingly, it really didn't until late 89 or 90. Uh, but then it, then it collapsed. So our second year in business, I think we sold three properties and um, that's in comparison to when the business ended up being stabilized. We were selling four or 500. Um, and I think those three buildings were each uh, valued at around or less than a couple million bucks. So uh, it was challenging, but we uh, we got through it. And Massey Knackle, we, we had for 26 years. So we had a great run, all kinds of stories and inflection points in there. Um, and uh, sold that business in uh, 2014 to Cushman Wayfield and uh, spent time at Cushman, had a uh, a hiatus in the middle of all that, where I ran for political office in New York. I ran for mayor in 2017, which was a blast. I loved, um, made some tactical errors, which we can get into, but, um, uh, didn't win. And, um, and then, uh, really longed for being back in, in the business, uh, which we had loved so much and, uh, started B6, uh, four years ago. Wow, a lot to unpack there. I have I have a, a question. So you, you got into research in um, the early to mid eighties. This is pre CoStar, right? This was when research was probably, I'm guessing, you're walking the, the, the blocks of New York City with a with a pen and a pad and writing down addresses and looking up parcel maps and looking at tax assessments. Like what, what was it like trying to gather data back then to try to figure out how to identify an opportunity to, to, to sell a property? Yeah, it was, um, it was interesting. You could buy a book that gave you some basic raw data about each property by block and lot. Um, but that, that was it. And that, that information was generally inaccurate. So we created our own, um, database, um, we call them catalog books. And we had a picture on every building 
um, all the data in every building, all the data in every um, conversation we would have with the owners. So we we created a raw CRM system um, that really gave us a, a big advantage um, over the competitors. Um, another thing that we did was um, that that I find interesting looking back is we had we ultimately had an army out there. We had you know three hundred people, and we were in every neighborhood and every in every borough, all five boroughs in the city. And the troops out in the market would feed us um, all kinds of data, you know, sales comps, land comps, development comps, and we would package all this information up by marketplace and then we would feed it back to the market for free and we um we knew that they would be companies that would come and package this stuff up the rheonomies the rheologies the you know the rcas um but um at the time there was none so it was a beautiful thing because we became the trusted authority about the business that we had fallen into a big market share position in. So it was, it was effectively a double moat, um, which really uh, served us for a, a large chunk of the time that we had the business, probably 14, 15 years. Um, and it made competitors really not relish the thought of taking us on. Um, so it was, it was really great. I, it was just a, it was applying a level of discipline to the market that um, others hadn't. And you would have thought New York City was institutional and organized. It was the Wild West. We consider ourselves that we fell into something we just love doing, but it was ripe for um, discipline and organization and an institutional approach. Yeah, I mean... I think a lot of people make the assumption that uh, these big cities in commercial real estate must run very sophisticated processes and have access to insane amounts of data that's super accurate that people act on. And, you know, thus you make a lot of money when you sell a property or, you know, execute a lease. But the reality is a lot of it has just been built over the years on grunt work. Um, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I'm always fascinated with, okay, you've got this information, you can make sense of it yourself. And as a former broker, I always found the hardest part was figuring out how to act on that information so that you can start a conversation with a potential client. Um, and you mentioned that your second year in business, you only sold three properties. And so like, how, tell me what it was like as, you know, a two man shop just starting out in a tough market, um, getting the attention of the people that you wanted to do business with? Well, people wanted what we were selling, right? They wanted someone to represent them. We picked, we, like like in the M&A business, or you could really apply everything we're talking about to any sales type of organization. But in, the, in Wall Street, on the M&A side, everyone wants to rep the selling company, right? And so that was where we wanted yep. to be. And we also sold hard the fact that we didn't do buyer representation, which every other competitor did and still does. So um, the clients loved that singular loyalty to them um, because all the other firms, it was clear, would have 
in the best of situations, um, you know, confusion and at the worst outright conflict, uh, leaving the client wondering who's representing them. So we got disciplined in that way, but we were also so dug in every submarket um, that we could sell the property better because we knew the trajectory of the market. So um, I think organizing this raw data was um, was really a big part of the success. Yeah, um, you got to have that foundation of data. So speaking of that, um, and looking back on your your career, you've been through cycles, you've been through boom cycles, you've been through bus cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, two parts of this question. One is, where do you think we are right now? In the cycle. Um, and then how would you look at utilizing data today to, uh, generate good outcomes? I think if you, uh, I think where we are today is, um, I think we're in a recession, um, at least locally and have been, you know, COVID really put a whammy on, um, probably a lot of major CBDs, um, especially on the office and retail side. And then, um, and then we went into a higher interest rate environment. So people are talking about, are we going into a recession? Are we in a recession? I think recessions can be industry specific and I think they can be local. So if you look back at just our New York City market, and this probably applies to Boston and Washington and all the other major cities, um, we've been at half speed here for three years, meaning on simple math, and this gets to your, your data question. If you look at the raw data, and I'm just using New York City as an example, um, on an average year, there are 3,000 sales, and that's low velocity. The tax structure in New York City is so uh, against selling, um, economically against selling, that, it's, that people hold the uh, average building for 39 years. So you're way better off refunding every four or five years, which is why we want to be in that business too, because that's your other capital opportunity. But if the average sale is, is, is average year is 3,000 unit sales, we've been at sub 1,500 for three years between rent regulations that were promulgated by the legislature here, COVID and interest rate hikes. Um, but those... 1,500 people that, if you look at the raw data that didn't sell um, every year for the last three years, those people are estates that haven't been settled, partnerships that are old and needing to be wrapped up, or retirement retirees who just put it off because they're kicking the can. Um, those 1,500 people a year times three is 4,500 people um, so we're looking at the raw data of uh, a diminished velocity market saying to ourselves, they're not going to wait forever. So there's great optimism at our company that um, t- 2023 is going to be a big kick up in velocity, whether we're in a recession or not. So we're, we're in a good place thinking about and listing the, our listings, uh, number of listings and um dollar velocity of listings is at a record high. So um, that that 
that feels good. And I, I hope we're not. I, Goldman Sachs is saying we, and, and there are a bunch of smart people that we're probably just miss actually being in a recession. I kind of feel that might be right. So um, if the real estate community can sort out, you know, what it's been through and we have a recession that we just missed or a mild one, um, again, I'm, you know, optimistic for the next couple of years. Yeah, I love, I love the optimism. A um, couple of questions to follow up on that. So how would you how would you clarify that for uh, different strata of investors, um, institutional, private, public, et cetera? Is there going to be varying degrees of pain for institutional capital that has been deployed over the last 10 years, you know, pension fund type of money? Versus, you know, these partnerships or kind of mom and pop operations that are looking to unwind, et cetera. Uh, who, who's going to get hurt the worst? Um, you know, and who, who has the who's best positioned um, to benefit from from kind of the the storm that that has happened here? I think an easy way for us to look at um, who where where the opportunity is is by asset class. Right. I, I thought, you know, for one, the retail market, retail condos, retail stores had hit bottom just prior to COVID. I mean, technology had killed every tenant it was going to kill. Uh, personal services tenants were thriving. And then, you know, unexpectedly in, in something no one probably would have predicted, the market took another monumental hitch down. So I think retail prices are at half price. Um, I can't imagine how it doesn't stabilize and go up. Um, some of that will be dependent, especially in the Midtown District and the Downtown Office District on the recovery of the office space. Um, I think another opportunity would be the office market. Uh, the, the, the major friction point right now is financing. You can't, you, you're gonna have a very difficult yep. time with acquisition financing. Interestingly, you're going to have a very interesting time financing TI for major leases. Um, the banks are used to, you know, make those loans as throwaways for, you know, large companies they were trying to, you know, make inroads with. Um, now those loans, in some cases, aren't aren't even getting done. So the, those markets are going to be major opportunities. The residential side is, um, you know, I think. Boston, Washington, New York, all still suffer from um, a housing shortage. Um, so again, that market to us is stable and rent regulations um, probably are going to be lessened to, to and, and tax abatement programs that facilitate development are gonna be put in place to, uh, to create housing. Um, our local governor here is, uh, touting uh, major housing creation and she she needs to and we we have we have to have it so those those are those are going to be healthy markets that last mile delivery industrial uh, has been on fire I think it's taking a little breather but I don't see how that uh, goes anywhere but from stable to better in the future as well because it's just this scarcity there so each asset class I think has has opportunities. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And I think what 
a lot of people tend to do is read the headlines. They see Microsoft today announced they're going to lay off 10,000 people. Twitter got cut in half. Like all of these big tech companies are, are laying people off. And that is a very specific sector of the economy as well, which might not necessarily be indicative of everything happening all at once. Um, and real estate itself is its own kind of economy within the broader economy. And when you slice it down by asset class, given everything that's happened over the last three years, you know, you, you, there's no there's no kind of magic formula to say, oh, this is going to happen. We're in a recession. Uh, Everything is going to stop for the next three years. Uh, it sounds to me, given your analysis, that, um, you know, each little micro sector is going to go through its own recovery period. And some of them might not even be in that much trouble. Yeah, no, the um, look, the thing that you have to keep in mind is um, no one can tell me New York's not going to be New York. And, you know, we'll be our whole country if we weren't the one of the financial capitals of the world. So I, I'm in, in, you know, I'm from Boston, so I love Boston. I think it, it's a fantastic place to live and work. So these cities aren't going anywhere. And uh, I, I think smart money's chasing office product right now because I, I can't imagine how it can get cheaper than it probably is right now. Yeah, buyer's market right now. It's got to be. Um, which positions B6, I think, for some good stuff, right? So um, I love the name, building by building, block by block. Um, it it kind of seems like it's uh, your old mantra of just every borough, every block, every parcel, know everything that's going on and be able to, you know, have the data at your fingertips to transact. What, you know, what was the inception idea behind the new firm? The, a, a main focus was linking investment sales to debt brokerage. And uh, we still believe that that's um, the right formula. Um, because if you think about it, uh, if you've got that 39 year hold likely, um, another source of capital for folks is, um, you know, a bread and butter refi every four or five years. If you look at uh, just again, New York City as an example, the five boroughs, there are 3000 building sales. It's probably $45 billion on average uh, dollar velocity. Um, if you look at the debt market because of those, the, the long term hold, um, there are 9000 debt trades on an average year in New York City, as opposed to 3,000 sales. And the, the dollar velocity and the flow is 130 billion every year, 130 billion. So that business is a great business and it's fragmented um, the way things were for investment sales back in, uh, in our big year in 1988 when we started our first company. Yeah. I think there's big opportunity there. Yeah, still fragmented. Sure. Yeah. Um, on your a, website. Oh, uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say there's a lack of flow uh, of information. Um, kind of very similarly to what there was uh, before we started, you know, feeding the world market comps. And again, I think the market will catch up and systematize that and you'll be able to rent data on LTVs and interest rates per market. But now there isn't. So smells like it's complete opportunity. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say that I, I was 
kind of went down a rabbit hole on your website um, while prepping for this interview. And um, you did mention uh, what kind of one of the pillars of, of the new company is, is technology and technology enabling your, your team. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you view the role of technology in kind of the success of like a modern brokerage company. What is your what does your tech stack look like? What tools are at the fingertips of, of your, your troops? And, and how do you kind of assess its value when you're looking at technology tools to deploy? And are those in-house tools? Or are you looking at off-the-shelf tools, et cetera? We've enjoyed our business because we've embraced technology. I think the more that you embrace it, the more you're ready for it. Um, and um, we, we think about technology in every aspect of our workflow. Uh, we have a fantastic customized CRM system linked to the property data information um, that because we operate on a territory or submarket basis, we can share. So any one of our teams can look and see what conversations we're having with anybody in any market across the five boroughs, which is power and, uh, and, and dug in yep. and, um, in such a micro way that the competitors really, you know, it's super frustrating for them to think about doing that. And then we're looking at uh, how do we, how is the world going to be automated on the sale process, right? Um, wh how can we make it easier for the buyer? You know, we're, we're a seller rep firm, but I think the more that we're user-friendly to investors, um, the more relevant and helpful we'll be. And I think that again is embracing technology, running towards it, you know, as opposed to, and understanding it as opposed to not. Yeah. And we could probably have a whole podcast conversation about the actual process of purchasing and selling a property and what, what the impacts of just smoothing that out with technology could be. I'm sure there are companies that are tackling, tackling that, whether they're firms like yourselves who are looking at that as a way to create value by creating something themselves or, you know, startups like us who are saying, look, this is a messed up process. It should be a lot easier for both the seller and the buyer and the lender, et cetera. Um, but, you know, let's pause, let's put a pin in that one. We can come back to it once it becomes a little bit more of a reality. Um, one last topic before we jump into our, our, our five fast questions. I'm fascinated by your, um, your decision to run for mayor of New York City. What what prompted that? Uh, uh, you know, I think everybody always looks at the themselves as like, yeah, I could, I could run this town, or I could do that job. Where, where did your, where did your political um, aspirations start, and and what was your, what was your platform? Um, I, uh, I, I ran as a Republican, which is was one, maybe one of the biggest challenges. Um, uh, my grandfather was a Republican. I thought he was a cool guy, so I never questioned my party affiliation. But that's a tough road in New York City. But getting back to the the real thing, we had um, we had great mayors in New York. Um, Rudy Giuliani, you know, you know let's um, just say back in the day, we we needed his level of focus and discipline, um, and uh, and he had you know, a strong eight years. And then you never would have predicted would be, he would have been uh, followed by Michael Bloomberg, who um, is kind of one of America's great CEOs. Um, so, you know, we had 12 years of him. So we had 20 years of leadership. And then 
uh, with respect, it stopped. And um, I viewed it as a CEO job that would uh, on steroids that would have been a blast with 330,000 employees, 53 different departments and um, combine that with a love for the city. Um, I would have loved the job, would have loved the job. And, um, and so uh, the process um, was, a, was also a blast because we, you know, we used to think we were Mr. New York City because we were in every borough and ever in every submarket, uh, but we never really knew the city from the perspective of public service and and what people talked about and cared about from from other than real estate. So when you get out there, um, New York is um, an amazing, diverse place, and every community's got different folks, and they they all care about very different things when you're talking to them. But they all share a common love of being part of the fabric and an immense pride about that. And they love being in New York. Um, so getting to understand that and meeting people up and down all the food chains and uh, was a was a thrill. Yeah, that's I mean, 330,000 employees seems like a pretty big job. I would imagine that there would be no uh, dull moments uh, well, also, leading, yeah, also leading you, that workforce. <laughs> yeah. Also, if you chunk up where the city spends its money, the budget's a, roughly over a hundred billion dollars, but um, 33 billion of that is spent on um, public schools. Right. And you've got a million kids in the public school system. Um, I could argue that there are some great schools, but many of them are brutally underserved. And imagine, I think big city mayors have power um, on a relative basis. And imagine the power and the benefit you could have brought to um, those million kids. And then if you were job friendly and uh, proactive about big business and small business, you'd have a you'd have an educated workforce that could attract businesses and it could all feed off itself. So I think those were two big areas of focus for us um, that still need focus. And um, but I think you can do a lot of good. You can do a lot of social good. Yeah, well, you've, you've just started a company, but I got to ask, you got another you got another run in you? Um, I think I better focus on what I'm working on. <laughs> um, <laughs> Probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah. And, and just a personal question, um, being from outside Boston, were, were you successful in um, jettisoning, jettisoning your, your Red Sox uh, loyalty now that you're a New Yorker? Like, where, where, where did you end up on that? Yeah, so I, I would tell people that I like going to Yankee Stadium and I, I'm, I'm probably... Uh, leaning towards being a Yankee fan. And my former partner, Bob Knackle, who's still a brother to me, when we'd be out talking to clients and friends and I would say that, he would look at me and say, um, you've got to stop saying that. You were born there. You sound like a freak. <laughs> and uh, so I told you the truth, but I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. I'm a New Yorker living in Boston and I, uh, I face the same issue. Uh, I think you, you can never really um, 
can never really change sides in that rivalry. It's, 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 there's too much. There's too, there's too many people that are just going to call you out. It, it was, it's the friendliest, healthiest rivalry that I, that I know. It's wonderful. <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, let's get into our fast five questions here. Um, I'm going to give you a minute to answer each one. Um, and, uh, you know, make them as, uh, as colorful as you'd like, and then we'll wrap this bad boy up. Um, question number one, and I know that I gave you a few, uh, in, uh, preparation for this, but I'm going to shake them up a little bit. Um, at least in order, uh, we're, we're, we're starting off a new year. Uh, what's one kind of new thing you want to do this year? Um, so I got into jujitsu recently. That's a whole story. I was wrestler in school and have done a lot of martial arts, but I'm loving that. I'm going to enter a master's tournament. I'm, I'm 63. I'm going to enter a master's tournament in jujitsu as a white belt, which is a, a difficult thing for me to get used to, but I'm going to um, see how I do in that. Yeah. That might be asking for trouble, but I, I, uh, I got faith in you. Um, What's your number one hobby besides jujitsu or martial arts? Love to ski. Can't, can't get too many ski days in. And it's a very family thing for us too. So it's a, it's, you start the day together, you end the day together and our families loved to ski together for, for a long time. Yeah. You might want to head West to get some snow this, uh, this year, but, um, we are my youngest. Yeah. That's a great family. Uh, family, yeah. My youngest daughter, who's 26, just moved to Park City, and uh, she's teaching ski school at Park City Mountain. So we're going to go visit her. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, What's your favorite uh, type of cuisine? If you had to choose one type of cuisine to eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? It would be McDonald's. I've I've eaten it my whole life, and I don't don't intend to stop. I love love junk food, and uh, but particularly... uh, quarter pounders. Yeah. I was going to say the next question was going to be, what's your order? Yeah. Quarter pounder, uh, some fries. That's it. Big diet Coke. Yeah. Right down the middle. Yeah. (laughs) Right down the middle. Uh, you can't, you can't go wrong with that. Um, well, Paul, it's been awesome having you on the show. We really appreciate it. Um, uh, if, uh, we, were to have continuing guests on the show, who are a couple of people that you'd recommend we, we host? We have, um, I thought about this already. We have two, uh, we have an advisory board for our new business and, uh, two people that are on it who are dynamic and, um, have had great success are, uh, Rick Clark, uh, formerly chairman of Brookfield and Ovier Denny who runs Stonehenge, which is an the biggest institutional multi owner in New York city. I'd try to get them and I'd actually, I don't know if you'd do this, but I'd try and get them together. It'd be, be really, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Glad to help with that. Well, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll hit you up for some help on that one. Um, Paul, it's been a, a absolute pleasure talking to you, uh, for our audience. If people wanted to find you find B six, how would they do that? Um, my email is uh, p massey m a s s e y at b six realestate dot uh, com, and um, our website is uh, b six realestateadvisors dot com. Um, but you know, 
I'm I'm casual. I you know, give me a call too. It's 917-838-5360. All right. We got the phone number. There you go. All right. Well, Paul, thanks so much for uh coming on the show. It's been great. Thanks for everything, Matt. Really enjoyed it. 